title this morning's message is Unstoppable Love. Unstoppable Love. And if you've not already done so, we have for the last five weeks been studying in 1 Corinthians 13. And I would invite you to turn there with me. We'll be reading there in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, we'll be in Matthew 5, if you want to put uh, a marker in the place. We think about so many things that we believe you have to have in order to have church. And we know, for example, that for the first 250 years, the church didn't have buildings. They met in homes. They met in open places. They met in caves. They met wherever they could but they didn't build buildings. And church entirely was composed of the people who gathered together. That's what church is in the New Testament, and that's what church was in the early centuries of the church. It was just the people. And so the church uh, gathers to worship in this place, but technically when y'all leave, the church has left the building, and, um, and we have been dispersed to the places where God has called us to serve. Corinth was a church like that, but they had some problems. They were very excited about the Holy Spirit. They were very excited about their Bible teachers and their Bible studies, and so much so that it was creating division in the church. Some would say, well, I'm of, of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of John MacArthur, I'm of Adrian Rogers. I mean, they, they were doing that. They, they had their heroes and they were setting themselves off from other believers in the church at Corinth because of that attachment. They had a love problem, Paul said. And so when you come to chapter 13, he sort of talked to them about their issues, the ways that they weren't living in a way that honored the Lord and pleased the Lord. And then he comes to this chapter 13, and he says, you need to understand that love is the bridge between the idea of ministry and the actual act of ministry. We have learned in our study over the last five weeks that 1 Corinthians 13 is like a mirror that you and I can hold up to ourselves and say, am I loving someone? Am I loving others with the love of God? And I can hold it up to me because it is the perfect reflection of Christ. And when I hold it up and I look into it, I see who he is. And I can see who I am. And we learn so much this way. We've learned, for example, that the word for love that's used here is actually one of three words used in the New Testament to describe love. We saw that one word was phileo, and it describes a natural affection and really a love based on feelings and natural attraction. We might put parts of romantic love into this phileo category. And when I stop feeling a certain way, this love goes away. And then there's the word eros, and it describes a, a, a physical a desire and attraction for someone else, a sensual expression of love. And, and, of course, if I don't feel that for someone, then I don't love them. But then we've learned that agape love is not like that at all. It's not dependent on how I feel about someone. It's not dependent on who they are or what they have done. It's entirely dependent on him and who he is in me. Agape love is all about commitment to do what's best for another person, regardless of the cost to myself. That's why it's sacrificial. It's about a choice that I make, not a feeling that I have. And so people who function with this kind of love in their heart are making choices to love people that no one else would love and that others would find impossible to love. And 1 Corinthians 13 is all about agape love. 
it is so important that at the end of the letter, in 1 Corinthians 16, 4, Paul says, let all that you do be done with agape love. Everything you do. So what does that mean? Well, in chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, he tells us, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And then we come to verse 7, where we're going to study today. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It is unstoppable. Some years ago, when uh, my oldest daughter was, was little, I was, uh, I was in graduate school, and I was studying, working on a master's degree. And at that time, one of the professors at the college, Blue Mountain College, where I had attended as a student, got very ill, and they asked me to come in and essentially be an adjunct for him while he was ill. And I would assist him in his work in teaching classes at the college. And he never made it back to the class. He was so ill. And so I taught for two semesters. And on some occasions, I, I would take one of the kids with me. I took Rachel with me uh, one time. And so we're in the middle of this lesson. I don't remember what it was. It might have been geography, college geography, or something like that. And I'm teaching away. And all of a sudden, in the back of the class, I hear this. And she's, I'm saying, Rachel, why don't you stop that? I can't stop it. I can't stop it. And it goes on and on. And it finally did stop. I'm not sure exactly what we did to it, but we did, it did finally stop. You know, when God's love begins to work in your heart and my heart, it doesn't stop. It cannot be stopped. Your love, my love, it has limits. But God's love has no limits. And that's why over and over again, four times in this passage, it says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It cannot be stopped. Every relational circumstance that you can imagine is nothing. For the love of God. His love in you can overcome any situation that you face. And his love is unstoppable in at least four ways, according to verse 7. As you invite him to love others through you, you will discover that his love is first, always exercising restraint. His love is always exercising restraint. You know, what Paul has been doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is just building up to this. He, he's coming to the, uh, the very mountaintop of his description of love. And, and what he's doing, he's actually putting in uh, these statements so that no matter what you face, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. Because real love, he says, exercises restraint. It bears all things. Now this, this word has been particularly challenging for commentators and students of the Bible for years because they're not sure exactly how to translate it. This word for bears is a verbal form of a noun for roof. For a roof, like we have a roof over our heads right now. And, and if you turn the word roof into a verb, that's what you have here. And some translations will 
translate King James, New American, uh, English, ESV, will translate it as bears, and it focuses on the supportive nature of a roof. It's load-bearing, and you can put things on top of it, and in ancient times, people did go up on the roof and um, spend time up there. It was like their patio. They would go up there, so it's load-bearing, and some translations use the word bears. Others, like the NIV <clears throat> and others, will use the word protects or covers, and it's emphasizing the fact that it provides um, protection against the elements or, or something getting in or something getting out. When the word roof is used in Mark chapter 2, for example, that's the story where uh, friends brought a paralyzed person and broke through the roof and lowered him in front of Jesus. And so in that sense, the roof uh, had to be opened up in order for something to get in or for something to get out. Now Paul uses this word, and, and when, you're, when you're studying something, if you're having trouble understanding a word, just, just try to watch how that particular author will use that word elsewhere in the Bible. And he uses it in three other places. He uses it in chapter 9 of this letter, and he uses it twice in 1 Thessalonians. And that's the example I want to give you. It's not on the screen. Just, just listen to what he says. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 to 5. He uses it twice in verse 1 and verse 5. Listen. Therefore, when we could no longer endure, and that's the word used for bears all things, when we could no longer endure or stand it or keep a lid on it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of our God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one be, should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason... When I could no longer endure or stand it or keep a lid on it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Here he has this relationship with the people in Thessalonica. And he's worried that they're worried. He's concerned that somehow the persecution that Paul's experiencing is shaking their faith. So he sends Timothy to minister to them, to talk to them, to help strengthen them in their faith. But he says, I sent Timothy when I could no longer, what? Stand it, endure it, bear it. So what's he describing? I've got these emotions. I've got these feelings. I've got these passions. And they want to come out. And they don't come out as long as I bear it. And so what he's describing is that in relationships, God's love exercises restraint. That what you want to do, what you want to say, that God's love bears all things and is going to do the right thing and keeps it from coming out. Now some of y'all, you know, if you're, I don't know how old you would have to be, if you're uh, under the age of something, I don't know what it would be, you won't understand this, but I'm going to explain it to you. In the old days, in the old days, if you wanted to make popcorn, there were no microwaves. You understand. And 
and there was no Orville Redenbacher. There was, there were, there, they didn't even have Jiffy Pop. Now, if you need that explained to you, I'll explain it to you after church. But what you did was you put some oil in a pot like this, and you put a lid on it with the popcorn in it, and you set it on the burner, and it would pop. And it would be a glorious sound. Pum, 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 pum. If it was a metal lid, ding, 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 ding. You know, it was, it was great. Now, I did do this. When I, was, when, I could, when I was tall enough to reach it, and Mama had stepped out of the room, I wanted to see what was happening. <laughs> wow! Boom, 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 oh, oh, oh! <laughs> and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop the popping. I just wanted to see the popping. But I couldn't stop it. And it just came out, and it just came out, and it just came out. The love of God cannot be stopped. The love of God when he is in you is going to lead you, prompt you, guide you to love in such a way that what's, what you want to come out, you can bear it. Um, Jesus, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he touches on this very concept of restraint and what it does or means to you and me. In Matthew 5, 38, verses 41, he gives us two or three examples here. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's a law of retaliation, and the purpose of it was to keep people from going overboard in their retaliation. There was supposed to be restraint. But I say to you, Jesus said, do not resist, and, um, and this word means to show hostility. To show hostility, to retaliate. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I'm going to come back to that. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that's your inner garment, let him have your cloak, your outer garment as well. And so the restraint is, you know, I'm, I'm going to fight this. I mean, he took this from me and he's suing me, and I'm going to fight this in court. And he's saying, don't, don't fight that. Your obligation, your mission is to show the love of Christ. And he goes on and says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Roman soldiers could force anybody in a conquered land to carry their, their bags, their armor, their gear for a mile. Jesus said, at the end of that mile, love starts. Love starts and carry it the second mile. So Jesus is not saying, and I need you to hear this, Jesus is not saying you shouldn't defend yourself if someone is attacking you or someone that you love. Um, I remember talking to a lady one time in California years ago, and she argued with me about that. She said, no, 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 no. She said, I would just pray, and God would take care of me. God would protect me. I said, okay, just let's pretend that you're in the street and somebody's attacking you. And you're praying about that at the moment. God, deliver me. God, help me from this person who's attacking me. And I come around the corner. Do you want me to join you in prayer? Or do you want me to beat the snot out of that guy? <laughs> I might be the answer to your prayer, sister. <laughs> and Jesus is not teaching that. Let me, let me, let me show you what he's, what he's uh, doing. Brian, would you come up here? Do you mind coming up here on the platform? Brian is front and center in choir most of the time, and, and uh, he does such a good job, and um, 
He's a law enforcement officer, if you didn't know that. So I'm not going to hurt him or do anything <laughs> that, that would be untoward to him. But, but Brian, I want you to face me. Jesus said, if a guy slaps you on what? <laughs> what does he say? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. How many of you are right-handed? That's a majority. A majority is right-handed. And that's been true through the centuries. Most people are right-handed. In fact, if you were left-handed, people had problems with you being left-handed and would try to force you to be right-handed. So let's say I'm going I'm, I'm to do, I'm going to strike him on the cheek with my right hand, okay? Here's what I do. What? No, no. Put, <laughs> just relax, officer. I've always wanted to do this. Okay. All right. So I, I'm going to slap him on the right cheek. Boom. Now, one problem. Is that your right cheek or your left cheek? That's your left cheek. <laughs> so if I'm going to strike him on the right cheek with my right hand, what am I going to have to do? Backhand. Boom. That was not an assault in Jewish culture. That was an insult. That was an insult. And you know, an insult can hurt worse than a physical slap. It was totally demeaning. It was totally degrading. Thank you, Brian. Y'all give him a hand. And what he's saying, Jesus is saying, is if someone comes up to you and insults you, backhands you across your face, if they treat you in such a way, what is your first response at that moment? The average person, what do you want to do? Yeah, baby. <laughs> That's right. Jim raised his fist up. That's right. That's what you want to do. You want to retaliate. And Jesus says that God's love, when it's in you and flowing, uh, bears all things. It exercises restraint. Always exercises restraint. It's not doing what you feel. It's doing what the other person needs you to do. So what's your excuse for not loving someone? I mean, in this context, the way Paul's talking about it, the way Jesus illustrates it, to bear all things means that something happens to me that's hurtful. And it's hurtful to such an extent that if I'm not paying attention, if I'm not spending time alone with the Lord, if I'm not walking in the Spirit, if I'm not listening to God, what's going to come out of me is the very thing that love will bear when love is in control. Love will restrain. So when Jesus lives in you, he leads you to exercise restraint always. But there's a second thing he does. Love not only bears all things, it also believes all things. Number two, it's always risking exposure. Love is always risking exposure. Um, how does love believe all things? Well, Jesus, in the very next verse in Matthew 5, 42 I believe he touches on this in a way that, that we can talk about it. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Working at a church uh, for any length of time, you, you will know that people will be coming by regularly and requesting assistance. And I remember when I got out of school and... Um, we moved out west, and we were in our first uh, assignment with the whole mission board, and I, was, I was, had an office at the First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. And this room, I think, is bigger than that building. 
So it wasn't a huge building. It was a, it was a mission point. And, and I remember the first time somebody came by requesting a census, the pastor, and I've talked about Bob Tremaine, a mentor to me, he came into my office one day and he said, um, he said, have you, ever, have you ever helped or worked with a transient person, person who, who needed assistance? And I said, well, no, sir. And he said, well, today's your day. And he loved doing that to me. Uh, when I hadn't done something ministry before, he said, well, today's your day. Um, or he would say, didn't they teach you anything in college? That was his other favorite thing to say. And so, and so a person would come in, and the first few times that I tried to help someone, I, I listened to them, and I did what I could to marshal some resources to get them some help. I would get them a room for the night at the Hollywood Y, or I'd get them, get them something, some kind of assistance, some kind of help. But increasingly, I would go out later, and I would see them walking to another church, or I would see them walking down the strip or somewhere else, and, and they, were, they were obviously running a program. They had a whole lifestyle built around telling stories and, and receiving assistance. Well, that bugged me. That bothered me. And so the next time somebody came in, <clears throat> they came in, I said, well, tell me your story. They told me the story. And I said, okay, you lost your wallet on the Bakersfield uh, Denny's in Bakersfield, and then you took a bus here, and you walked all the way to First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills, Kaching, to seek assistance. Did I sound a little jaded? And I said, well, stay right there for just a moment. Excuse me. And I turned around. I picked up the phone in the old days when you asked for operator assistance. And I said, operator, can you get me the Denny's in Bakersfield? What? There's no Denny's in Bakersfield? Excuse me. And I covered the phone. I turned around. He was gone. Disappeared. I fact-checked one little piece of the story. He was out of there. I put the phone down. I said, thank you. And I put it down. I followed him out of the building. I said, hey, 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 hold on, hold on. He said, forget it, forget it, forget it. I said, hey, just tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. He said, I don't want to talk to you. He walked away. You know, God began to deal with me about my attitude. And when the Holy Spirit lives in a person, he doesn't leave you where you are. He always challenges you. He wants to change you, make you more like Christ. And so increasingly I saw that Jesus told this statement, give to one who begs from you, in the context of people who were taking advantage of people. People who were being abusive and backhanding. People who were suing people in court. People who were, who were doing awful things to others. In the context of that, he said, and by the way, when someone asks you for help, help them. Beggars may be taking advantage, but in the absence of facts, hear me, in the absence of facts, like they say, I need help, and they just drove up in a Lexus. You know, in the absence of facts, they may still need help. Love will help people. Now, you may not have the resources to make all their problems go away. Jesus isn't saying, make all their problems go away. He's saying, if someone asks, help. Help. Take a chance. Love does what it can do. Because of this, skeptics will say that Christians are gullible. The Lord Jesus was not gullible. Jesus knew when people were lying. People knew when people were dishonest. When Judas came to him in the garden and Judas greeted him with a kiss, Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm glad for that. What a nice kiss. 
I'm glad that you have changed your heart and you're not going to betray me now. Jesus didn't do that, did he? He spoke to him and he said, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus wasn't gullible and God's not asking you me to be gullible. But listen, there are people who are going to hurt you again and again and again. And they will sincerely come to you and say, I am sorry, will you forgive me? Will you give me another chance? Love believes whole things. In the absence of any other evidence, you say, well, they've done it three other times to me, Pastor. Look at them. They say, I've, I've changed. I want to try again. I want to do something differently. Give me a chance. God says, love believes all things. You know, the very nature of this word belief is the same word we use for trusting Jesus for salvation. And the whole nature of faith is I can't prove to you that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. I can't prove to you that he was raised from the dead. I can't prove to you that he's coming again. I can't prove that to you. The whole nature of faith is I have to put my trust in Christ, put my trust in the gospel without having full knowledge of the end result. There is a sense of risk when we trust Christ, when we trust anyone. And so the absence of full knowledge is sometimes where love has to go. I don't know everything about this person. I don't know if they're going to hurt me again. I don't know if they're going to do it four more times or five more times. But given the opportunity and the person asking me, give me a chance. I'm to believe and give them that opportunity. I'm not to be suspicious or cynical. So what's your excuse for not loving someone? My excuse for not loving someone. Love believes all things. Why would I need to believe all things because they've done something and it was so hurtful. I am not going to let them do that to me again. I am not going to be vulnerable to them again. And so I don't want to believe them. I don't want to give them a second chance. But his love in us supernaturally can enable you and me to do that. There's a third thing. When Jesus lives in you, he is always exercising restraint. He bears all things. He's always risking exposure. He believes all things. But number three, his love in you is always waiting for the change that can happen. Always waiting for the change that can happen. Have you ever said or heard someone else say, that person will never change? Now don't raise your hand and don't point. But have you ever said that or heard that said, that person will never change? Love doesn't do that. Why? Well, as we continue in Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus takes us places that are pretty uncomfortable. He says, you have heard it said, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why does Jesus want you to love your bloody enemy? And pray for the person who's damaging your life, ruining your home, ruining your family, ruining your whole world. Why? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle Paul explains, I believe, and gives us an answer to that question. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. And all of us are supposed to be bondservants of Jesus Christ, by the way. But he's talking about a pastor here. So the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Why? If perhaps God 
may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Hope is not wishful thinking, it is intelligent reasoning. This person I'm looking at may look hopeless, and because of their history, that may be who I think they are, absolutely hopeless. But God says, pray for them. Why? Because He has the power to change a human heart. And I don't know if that's going to be their future. I don't know if God's going to change your heart. But can you imagine what it would be like if that man got saved? If that woman got saved? He says, don't stop. Love is always waiting for the change that can happen. Keep sticking that hand out. Keep offering friendship. Keep loving them. Hope is laying hold of God's promises on behalf of someone else and never giving up. George Mueller, great man of faith in the 19th century, by faith built a string of orphanages that housed thousands of children in the 1800s, was led at a certain moment in his life as a fairly young man to begin praying for five friends that didn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. After a few months, one of those men was saved. After 10 years, two more of those men were saved. After 25 years of praying, are you with me? The fourth man was saved. And then Mueller died 52 years later, and the fifth man was saved after he died. What's your excuse for not loving someone? Hopes all things? Why wouldn't I hope all things? You know, I can look at somebody and because of the way they talk, the way they act, because of what they have done to me and what I have seen them do to others, I, could, I can reach a conclusion and, and think that there's no possibility that this person could ever change. And because I reach that conclusion, I stop loving them. And in contrast to that, the love of God never gives up. His love is unstoppable. He says, pray, and then wait for it, wait for it. See what God's going to do. So when Jesus lives in you, he's always exercising restraint. He bears all things. He's always risking exposure. He believes all things. He's always waiting for the change that can happen. But finally, number four, he is always bending without breaking. Bending without breaking. Love endures all things. In 2011, televangelist Pat Robertson said on national TV, when asked the question of a man married to a, an Alzheimer's patient where she could neither recognize him, carry on a conversation with him, interact with him, whether he should remain married to her. And on national television, he said that a man would be justified if he divorced his wife who had Alzheimer's so he could marry someone else. Is that agape love? No. I mean, that for better or worse thing matters. The word that's used here for endures all things, hupomene, means to literally stand under something else. And the picture is of something that's bearing a weight and you keep piling on things on top of, the, of that thing. It's like in, in the old days when I used to lift weights. Now I lift myself out of my chair. But when I used to lift weights, and, and you wanted to get stronger, you had people add to the weights. Put some more on there, and I'd do that one. Say, okay, now put some more on there, and we would do that one. And, 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 and eventually it would get to a place where I couldn't do it anymore. And whoever was spotting would, would have to save my life. 
because of the weight. Or when I was in high school and I was bagging groceries, and if I put too many of the wrong things into a bag, the paper bags would break. The paper bags will break. The plastic bags will cut through your fingers, but the paper bags will break. And so you can put too much into it, and it can't endure it. It can't stand up under the pressure, and it'll tear it open. But love says keep bringing it. Keep bringing it. It never breaks. It never stops. It always endures. In Matthew 5, verse 44, we read verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So what's Jesus' argument for enduring with someone who's persecuting and ripping your heart out and doing great damage to you? Because God endures for the sake of all souls. Everything that goes on every day in Wynn, Arkansas, God endures it and he sends the sun and he sends the rain. God endures everything that you and I have done to offend him. He endures that. He bears with it. Never cracks, never breaks, says, never says, that's the last straw, enough is enough. He doesn't do that. Yes, there's a judgment day coming, but today is not the day and you are not the judge. And so until that day comes, what are we to do? Love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus is saying to you and me, just keep doing what the Father's doing. When the Father lives in you, he's going to lead you to these crazy places and these crazy relationship scenarios where you're loving impossible people in impossible ways. So what's your excuse for not loving someone? To endure all things? The picture is you keep adding They did this, and they did this, and they did this, and they keep piling on. And at some point, if we're just loving them in a human human way, we say, that's the last straw. I can't do it anymore. I'm done. And you know what you need to do at that moment? You need to go to the Lord. And you need to let him fill your life. And because his love always endures. You've heard the story, perhaps, of Corey Ten Boom. 52-year-old woman during World War II, she, her sister Betsy, and her father rescued Jewish people who were escaping the deadly incarceration of concentration camps by the Nazis. And they were eventually discovered, and all three of them were arrested, and other members of their family, and they were thrown into the concentration camps. She lost her father, never saw him again, precious man of God, lost her sister Betsy. And then she describes a situation years later. Uh, By the way, she got out of the camp a week before every woman her age was killed in that camp because of a clerical error. It wasn't an accident. I think it was an act of God. But a clerical error. She was set free a week before every other woman her age was killed. And years later, she traveled around. She became a great woman of faith, sharing the gospel, sharing how you can trust God and always can trust him. And in her book, The Hiding Place, she tells this story. I was at a church service in Munich when I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men. She's remembering this. The heaps of clothing. Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying 
beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive kept my hand by my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. And you need to hear this. Some of you need to hear this. I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. What's your excuse for not loving someone? When the God of the universe offers to you his own love, and that when he posits that love in your life, that love is going to explode through your mind. It's going to explode in your heart, and you'll not be able to contain that. The only one stopping God's love from flowing through your life is you. So that brings me to this final statement, last statement. When you start receiving his love, you will also begin releasing his love. Who do you need to love? Maybe someone in your family or in your home. And maybe someone, a family member you haven't seen or been around for years. For whatever reason, you stopped interacting with them. And maybe, maybe it's someone that lives next door, someone in your neighborhood. Maybe it's someone in your church. And you find within yourself just a desire to not do these four things and you feel it intensely and if you leave God out of the picture I'm just talking as a human being I can fully understand why you would feel that way but the question is what kind of Christian do you want to be Do you want to be the real deal Do you want to be a man or woman who is who Christ in, inhabits who Christ indwells then make the choice today to love that person or those persons that you have not thought worthy of your love before now. And say, God, I don't even have it in me to forgive them. I don't even have it in me to give them a second chance. I don't even have it in me to believe that they could ever change or ever be different. So, Almighty God, may I know your love for me because I know you did all those things for me. Would you do that for them through me? Would you do that for them through me?
Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. As we move into a time of response, it is truly an opportunity for you to, to think, what is God saying to me? What has God been saying to you in the course of our Bible study, our worship today? And how are you going to respond? If God is speaking to your heart, what a precious gift from God that is. And will you say yes to him? Will you do the next thing, the next step that he's leading you to take? If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he alone can change your heart. No book that you read off of a bookstore shelf, no counselor, no pastor, no power on earth can change your heart, but Jesus can change your heart. He can melt your heart. He can give you a new heart. He forgives your sin because he died for you on the cross. This morning, if you want to become a new kind of person, I invite you to come and tell one of these pastors, I want to be saved. I want to be changed. I want to know Christ. And I want him to live in me. And if that's your heart cry this morning, would you just, in a moment when we sing, would you just get up out of the pew? I want you to come and just speak to one of these guys and just be transparent, be honest, and say, I want to be saved. Maybe you've been visiting a while and you know this is where God wants you to plant your life. You know this is where God wants you to serve and make friends and become part of the body of Christ. We invite you to come. We'll receive you now. If you just need someone to pray with you, or you want to come pray at the altar, whether you're in the balcony or downstairs, we invite you to come. Father, we commit this time to you, and Holy Spirit, would you come and move powerfully among us, we pray, in Christ's name.